All right, well, if you have not heard up to this point, um, we were anticipating starting our Doctrine or Theology 101 class uh, this Sunday or today, um, but I need to go and make a trip to Texas to see my grandmother, uh, so uh, we're going to postpone the theology class till next week. I appreciate your prayers as I travel. appreciate your prayers for my grandmother. I uh, just need to go and see how she is doing. Uh, some of you may or may not have heard, but she fell yesterday. So just be praying for her and be praying for our family. Uh, so I'll be traveling right after service to head down that toward that direction. So I appreciate your prayers. I also appreciate all the messages that I received this week after last week's sermon when we talked about anxiety and, and depression. I appreciate those messages. And it was, it was funny as we were having our praise team practice yesterday. Um, before the praise team practice, we typically tell them what I'm going to talk about this Sunday and, you know, just so we can kind of prepare our hearts for it. And uh, this Sunday we're talking to kind of about roles and relationships between men and women. And I think it was Don, he said, is last week's and this week's related at all? Depression and men and women? And I was like, no, they're not related. Um, but sometimes it may seem that way. You know, I've done a lot of premarital counseling over the years with couples. And one thing, one of my favorite parts of premarital counseling is when I talk about roles and responsibilities. Like what they feel like the roles and responsibilities should look like inside their marriage. And it's always very interesting because you always get a lot of different answers. But one of the first premarital counselings I ever did, um, it was in New York. And so I asked this question. I asked to the, to the lady, I said, what do you feel like your soon-to-be husband's responsibilities and roles should be in your marriage? And her, and I'm not kidding you, her, she goes, well, I expect him to fix our cars, to fix our house, and I expect him to do all the outside yard work. And then she goes, you know, man stuff. I was like, okay. It's like, this is going to be interesting. So, and the guy's looking at me and he's like, I don't know how to do any of that, you know? So, <laughs> so then I asked him, I was like, all right, well, what do you feel like the roles of your soon-to-be wife should be inside your marriage? And his response, women, don't throw anything at me. <laughs> I expect her to cook clean, start a family. You know women stuff. That was his response, okay? So, I looked at them both and I was like, well, why don't we look at what the Bible says? You know, let's talk about what Scripture says about roles and responsibilities inside marriage. And in chapter 11 of the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, we're going to find a very difficult passage. And the reason it's difficult is it's going to talk about something that, for the most part, um, some people may feel like it was just a cultural practice. Uh, some people may feel like this doesn't necessarily apply uh, to today. They believe it's kind of a cultural activity. But for some, this passage is going to have some hot button of emotions. Okay, so uh, for some, it's the elephant in the room. And um, it's, for some, we don't really want to talk about it. But I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Very, very interesting passage of Scripture. As you know, we have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Okay, and we've made it all the way up to chapter 11 so far. And uh, we've talked about a lot of different things. And we know that the whole crux behind this book is Paul is calling for unity among the church. And he's been addressing different issues that this church has had. Some issues that they've had that have caused um, some disunity inside their church. And that's what he's been speaking to. And he's going to continue on this realm in chapter 11. But let's work, look at verse 2 first. It says, I praise you for, for remembering me in everything 
and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. We'll stop right there. Now, before we go on any further in verse 3, verse 2 kind of sticks out like a sore thumb a little bit. Because just look at the first line. It goes, I praise you. Now, up until this point, Paul hasn't really praised them at all. All the way up to this point to chapter 11. He is, in some ways, has condemned them, in some ways has corrected them, but has never stopped and said, you know what, you're doing a really good job. So when I read this this week, I was like, well, that's, that's interesting. Because at this point, Paul hasn't done that yet. So why would Paul stop all of a sudden in chapter 11 and say, but by the way, you've done a really good job with this. You've done a really good job with remembering me and everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Is this Paul um, being sarcastic? Was my first thought. I was like, well, maybe Paul's just being sarcastic. You know, I personally, I could see Paul as a sarcastic guy. You know, I could see that. Maybe he's being sarcastic. Maybe Paul just knows he's about to address another heavy topic and he felt like, you know what? They kind of need some encouragement at this point. I've kind of hammered them pretty good for 10 chapters now. Maybe they need a little bit of encouragement. Um, but I do know this. Either way that this book of 1 Corinthians in a lot of ways has been uh, some heavy topics that we've talked about. has been some heavy things that we've addressed. At times it's been difficult to preach as I've shared with you and at times I'm sure it's been difficult to listen to. So 1 Corinthians is not an easy book. So with that I wanted to take some time and I wanted to just give celebration or praise for what God has done over these last couple years. And I think that's kind of what Paul is doing here. So I started to think back over the last three years and um, we've had a lot of just for lack of better words, God things happen in our church over the last uh, three years. As you know, in, in 2016, we established a budget. 2017, we began to work on new bylaws. Uh, we now have a new building. And we paid almost all of cash for the building, which is amazing. If you remember the, the bid that we originally had, we were looking at close to like $900,000. And everybody's like, oh no. But I was like, God can do this. And we came in at like $500,000 for the total cost. And we paid most of that in cash. So God has, did huge things there with the new building. Uh, we've had new programs established. We have a grief share now that we have going on on Sunday evenings. I'm super excited about um, in February, we had over 200 women at our ladies' conference, uh, and it was awesome. If you ladies weren't there in February, I, I got to sneak in here because Braden prayed for all the ladies at the very end. So I was at the back sneaking in, and it was, I don't know how you ladies did it, but somehow you fit 200 ladies in this room on tables, and it was awesome. It was just cool to see what God was doing there. We've added the Rizzios on staff. We had over 500 last year at our trunk retreat. Over the last three years, we've had 63 people saved, Amen. 43 people baptized, 40 feet, 45 people joined in membership. We've added on 13 new missionaries and a feeding center. God is just doing amazing things. So I want to praise him for that, number one, because I think sometimes as a church, we don't do that enough. I don't think we celebrate near enough as a church because we just kind of go from week to week, right? We just, let's just get through this week. Let's just get through this week. And God has just done amazing things. And that's not even counting just the next steps that a lot of you guys have taken personally. 
just the growth that you've had personally over the last three years. And I could, I'm just looking out at the crowd right now and I see faces of people that have just grown in their walk. And I could literally take this entire time and just sit down on a stool and go, I've seen how you've grown. I've seen how you've grown. I've seen how you've grown. God has done amazing things through our church. And that's a tribute. A lot of what we've seen here, the things I've just listed off, is attributed to you guys and your faithfulness, your faithfulness in attendance, your faithfulness in giving. But God has done great things. And I think that's what Paul is wanting to do here in this first verse. I think he's just wanting to pause and just say, you know what, church? It's sometimes really easy to get caught up on negative. It's sometimes really easy to think about the things we're not doing or think about the things we wish we were doing better and all these things. He's like, but church, I just want to praise you for a moment. I just want to lift you up. I just want to say, you know what? You're doing, God, God, is, God is still using you, okay? Don't, don't hit the panic button yet, church. I think that's kind of what Paul is saying here in verse 2. But in verse 3, Paul is going to start in on another heavy topic. And again, this is one of those things, we have talked about this topic before, but as I've said, as when you walk through a book, it's one of those things, you don't really have the luxury of just skipping over things as you're walking through a book. So again, this is a book I felt the Lord wanted us to walk through, so that means I feel like the Lord wants us to talk about this today. So in verse 3, let's continue to read in verse 3. He says, but, he just prays him, and now he says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head. What in the world is Paul talking about? Right? What in the world is Paul talking about? He said women should have their head covered. I've looked in here and I don't see any woman in here with their head covered, right? But he said women should have their head covered. Men should have their head uncovered. What is he talking about? Is this just a cultural thing? What exactly is Paul talking about? Very interesting passage of scripture. Is this just something that was for that culture and really has no bearing on us today? What is Paul saying? And I think for us to understand what he's talking about, we have to understand the culture back then. And we have to understand what a head covering actually represented. Okay, it wasn't just women cover your heads, men don't cover your heads. Okay, there were some things that the head covering actually represented back then. And your first feeling is this, the cover was a symbol of femininity. During this time, the attire from the neck down was very similar for men and women. The attire was very similar. So culturally, it was quite common for women to wear a head covering, to a man not to have a head covering. Because it was a distinguishable, head coverings and hair length were distinguishable features in that culture. Pastor Doug Gowen said this about the first century culture. It says, across Jewish and Greek and Roman cultures, the head covering was a symbol of sexual purity. So for a Christian woman in the church to appear in public without that covering, let alone to pray or to share the word in worship, was both culturally offensive and from Paul's perspective, confusing to non-believers who were trying to understand what this new community of faith stood for in terms of values and relationships. So this 
head covering was a distinguishable feature between men and women. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the cover was a symbol of authority. Cover was a symbol of authority. Today, head coverings are a fashion thing, right? If you're wearing a hat, it's typically a fashion deal, okay? Guys wear ball caps. Maybe some ladies will wear a scarf or a hat or whatever. It's, it's a fashion thing. In some lines of work, it's a, manu- it's a mandatory thing, okay? Some of you have to wear hard hats for work, okay? Some of you have to wear helmets, whatever it is. So for us today, a head covering is a fashion or it's more of a utility thing. But during the Bible times, a head covering for a married woman was a symbol of loyalty to her husband and an acceptance of his leadership in their relationship. So for a man to cover his head in worship would be for him to deny his, his position of authority and for a woman to uncover her head is for her to say, I'm not under anyone's authority. Now here's the thing. Some may just at the get-go want to push back against this. Okay, because again, here we go, talking about authority of men and women and all this. And I think we need to be very, very careful to understand that Paul is not looking down upon women. Okay, Paul is not looking down upon women. That's not what he's saying. Nor is Paul advocating that women need to be barefoot and pregnant. Okay, that's not what Paul's go-to. That's not what Paul is saying here. As a matter of fact, if you really look in Scripture, you'll see that Paul was a huge advocate for women in Scripture. Paul was a huge advocate for women in Scripture and for their position inside the church and for the ministry that they could have. Just look at Romans chapter 16. Very interesting passage. He said, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Centuria. Now that word deacon essentially means servant. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Then he says, a Greek Priscilla and Aquila, this was a, a couple, many my co-workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. As you can see just from those few verses that women held a huge part in Paul's ministry and a big part in the early church. So if Paul's not advocating, okay, that women don't have a role, then what is he saying? Let's get to the heart of this topic. Verses 11 and 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. See, when Paul is talking about this head covering, he's talking about authority, not superiority. And that's very, very important. There is a difference between the two. Superiority says you're below me, right? If I'm saying I'm superior to you, you, that means that you're below me. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul isn't talking about superiority. He's talking about authority. He's talking about the fact that God has set up a social structure. And God has set this social structure up, and we would be very wise to look at this social structure and to see the way that God has set up the home and how God has set up society. It's not about superiority. It's about authority. Very, very important. So one thing, so what can we learn from this? I want to point out to you this. Number one, men and women were created equal but different. Men and women were created equal but different. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
We are created equally in God's image, equal value, equal honor. We're equal, but we're different, aren't we? Now, our culture will try to really push and make us socially unequal. This has been a battle for a long, long time. Our culture tries to, tries to divide, and our culture tries to push inequality. But here's the thing. The cross that we sung about in our last song, the cross is a great equalizer, isn't it? The cross has always been the great equalizer. See, when we look at the cross, we see a couple things. We see, one, we're all on the same page. We're all helplessly lost without Jesus. Every single one of us. So the cross becomes this great equalizer. It realizes that we're all sinners. realizes that we all need a Savior. The cross brings equality. Now, while we are equal, we are still different. And that's not a bad thing. Okay, we're equal but different. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the graciousness gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I want to look at this verse. He says, first, be considerate as you live. Okay, what is he talking about here? What does it mean to be considerate as you live? Basically, it means, husbands, you need to be understanding of your wives. You need to live with understanding. Men, we have to be understanding of our wives. Not just understanding, but applying that understanding to how we live our lives with our spouses. Very, very important. I understand this. I know my wife very, very well. And I know there are certain things that set my wife off. Okay? I understand my wife has some pet peeves. And she has some things that really, really bother her. Gentlemen, I, you would probably say the exact same thing about your spouse. You know what really, really bothers your wife. Now, I would like to say that I have that understanding and I apply that understanding every day of my life. I would, like I said, I would like to say that. But I don't. There are times I know what bothers my wife. And there are times that either I'm just in a bad spot or I'm just mad and I do the things that bother my wife. Now, I have understanding of what bothers my wife, but I don't always apply that every day. Peter's telling us, men, be considerate with how you live with your wife. Live with understanding. And that understanding that you have, then apply that into your relationship. He then goes on to say this, treat them with respect. Guys, I could camp on this all day long. I had this special honor and privilege of being raised by my grandparents. From the time I was five years old, my grandparents were my parents. And one thing that I saw in their relationship was this. Respect. My grandfather treated my grandmother like a queen. Goodness. It, my grandmother still to this day has never filled up her car with gas. Because every night my grandfather would check her car. And if it wasn't on full, he would take it and go fill it up. Every night. I could never say a crossword to my grandmother. Because if I did, I knew I was going to have to deal with my grandfather. I'll never forget one day he came to me and said, son, come on. I said, where are we going? He's like, we're going to go fill up your grandmother's gas, your grandmother's car with gas. He goes, I want you to drive your sister's. We're going to fill hers up too. 
I said, okay. So I went and filled my grandmother's up and then filled my sister's up and then came back and got my other, my other sister's car and filled hers up. And then I, we came back and I went to grab my car and he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go fill my car up too, right? He goes, no. I was like, what? He's like, well, why not? He was like, you're almost a grown man. I don't know if you fill your car up with gas. I was like, but he was like, no. And I asked him one time, I said, Papa, why do you fill Nana's car up with gas every night? I don't ever want her to run out of gas. I said, but sometimes you only put a gallon in there. He goes, I don't care. I want to make sure she always has a full tank wherever she goes. My grandfather embodied this idea of respecting your wife. And it was, to me, it was an amazing thing to watch. And so many things that I have learned about marriage, I've learned from my grandfather. So it says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect. And then it has this phrase, as the weaker partner. Now this is where, all of a sudden, some ladies will be like, well, hold on. Hold on here. I'm not weaker. Understand this. When it says weaker partner, it's not talking about weaker mentally or weaker spiritually. It's simply saying that, physically speaking, you're probably weaker. And that's okay. But what it's saying, it's not saying that in a negative way, but what it's saying is, husbands, live with your wives in a considerate way. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. In other words, guys, don't try to dominate your wives. That's what it's saying. Husbands, don't dominate your wives. Treat them with respect. Love them. Care for them. And then it says, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is a reminder of the equality men and women share in regards to their relationship with Christ. Equality and spiritual privilege and eternal importance. As we said, equality doesn't mean sameness. Equality doesn't mean sameness. We're equal, but we're different. And gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I am glad that my wife is different than me. I'm glad that she is different. I'm glad that God has made men and women different. And we should celebrate those differences. It's equality, and equality doesn't always mean sameness. Last thing for you to write down, God designed men, man to lead, and woman to help or support. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now some of us may get tripped up on this, especially in our society today. But here's the problem. Sin has messed up what God put into play a long, long time ago. If you read the book of Genesis, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, you see the social structure that God put into place. And the issue is, man, we messed that up a long time ago. Sin came into play, Genesis chapter 3. See, it's a very interesting thing. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, we see that God creates, he creates man, and then he creates woman, and he gives man a job. And man's job... He told him, he goes, you can have whatever you want. Just don't mess with this tree. That was what he told Adam. Now, Adam's job was to pass that along to his wife. 
Okay, his job was to lead out, lead out in their relationship spiritually, protect his wife spiritually from that. Well, as you look in Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan shows up on the scene, serpent shows up, and what does he do? He tempts Eve. He says, just take a bite. But what does Eve say? Eve says, well, hold on. We're not supposed to do that. So we know up at this point, Adam has done what he is supposed to have done. Okay, he has told Eve, we're not, we're, Eve, we're not supposed to do that. Well, Satan continues to tempt. And basically says, this won't be that big of a deal. Just take a bite. And she takes a bite. And scripture says, she took a bite and gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, this is where things really go off the rails, if you will. Because here's the problem. When I read that and see that she took a bite and then gave some to her husband who was with her, that tells me that Adam was with her. So Adam was with her when this temptation is happening. Why didn't Adam step into play and say, no, we're not supposed to do this. No, this won't be good. No, this is not for us. But he never does that. He just watches this whole thing unfold. They both take a bite. The scripture says their eyes were opened. They saw that they were naked and they felt shame. Very interesting. Shame was never an emotion God ever intended for us to experience. But at that moment, they experienced shame. Then it says God came walking in the garden looking for them. It's like, hey, where are you guys at? God knew exactly where they were at. He wasn't playing Marco Polo, okay? He knew exactly where they were at. And Adam says, ah, we're hiding. He's like, why are you hiding? He's like, well, we were naked. He's like, how would you know you were naked? He's like, well, the woman you gave me. So Adam says, the woman you gave me took some of the fruit and then she gave to me. So Adam very quickly passes the buck and blames it all on the woman. So God goes through and he says, there's going to be consequences to this. Sin has now entered into the picture. Or we don't have this perfect communion anymore. And because of that, we know that's why Jesus had to come and die on a cross for our sins. Sin has entered the picture. But in verse 16, God says something very interesting. And he's speaking to the woman. He's speaking to Eve. And he says, your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. Now this is a consequence of the fall. So he says, your desire will be for your husband. Now at first glance, that first sentence doesn't sound too bad, right? Your desire will be for your husband. That doesn't sound bad. But it's very interesting when you look at Genesis chapter 4. Because what you're going to see is this word desire is the same word that you're going to find in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. Look at what that says. This is speaking of, talking to Cain, Adam and Eve's son. It says, if you do what is right, you will, not, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See, these two words desire in chapter 3, then in chapter 4, speaks to the desire in chapter 4, specifically for the desire of sin to master over Cain. But in chapter 3, what God is saying, because of the curse, Eve, you're going to have to fight a desire to master your husband. You're going to have to fight this desire. Eve, you're going to have a desire to master your husband. You're going to have a desire now 
to rule. You're going to have a desire now to step into a position that God has never really intended for you to step into. A desire that goes again, what works against God's original intention. <coughs> see, but when we look in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God made man and then he said he was alone and made a helper suitable for him. This word helper, or even this word submissive or submission, has such a negative context today. But inside scripture, it was not a negative thing. God never intended for it to be negative. He uses the word helper to describe woman. And here's a very interesting thing. Jesus uses that exact same word, the word helper, to describe the Holy Spirit. Very interesting. So while it's easy sometimes to look at Genesis chapter 2 and say, ah, you see, know your role. No, 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 no. That's not the spirit of Genesis chapter 2. God looks and says, man... You're going to mess things up by yourself. And I'm going to send you a helper. And then later on in the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm going to be leaving. But don't worry because I'm going to send you a helper. It was never meant to be a negative thing. Our society has made it very negative. It was never meant to be negative. I understand this. My wife is my perfect helper. She compliments me in so many ways. It is unreal. There are things that I don't like to do unless my wife is going to be there. The end of the day. I'm not really good in like party situations, but my wife is fantastic in those situations. So like, if I know that I need to go to some sort of a party, I'm bringing my wife. Because she's great in those situations. Me, not so much. My wife is a perfect helper. She's a perfect compliment from the very beginning. But Satan from the beginning of time has tried to pervert and mess up the natural roles that God has set up. And I do know this, and I've seen this over and over and over again in relationships. When a husband and wife are operating in their natural God-given roles, they find true peace and true fulfillment. When they're operating in their natural roles, they find peace, they find fulfillment. doesn't mean that a woman can't lead. doesn't mean that a woman should not initiate. It does mean, however, that ladies should encourage the men in their life to lead. They say you need to encourage them to lead, encourage them in their leadership. And sometimes, ladies, that requires patience. Because sometimes, as men, we're slow learners. So it requires some patience. So let's wrap this up with some next steps. Number one, men, it's time to lead. Plain and simple, men, it is time to lead. God has called you to lead. Your wife, your family, your church needs you to be the man that God has designed you to be and lead the way that God has designed you to lead, especially in spiritual matters. I know it is much easier just to say, well, she knows more than I do. Or it's easier to say, I'm not in charge, so don't look at me. Or it's even easier to say, well, that's my wife's department. Gentlemen, God has called you to lead. I understand this. Being the man, the leader that God has called you to be can be dangerous. It can be exhausting. Putting yourself on the line for those who are following you is a huge responsibility. But I also know this. Gentlemen, we were made for this. You've got to grab a hold of that. Men, we were made for this. 
God has made you to lead. In all aspects, He has made you to lead. He has called you to lead. Ladies, resist the urge to take control. And it will be an urge. Remember what Genesis says. You will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. It will be an urge. Be willing to submit. Encourage. Pray for your husband. Pray for the men in your life. Pray that God will empower them to lead. Encourage them to lead. So then it begs the question. And we've talked about this before. What do you do if you're single, right? What do you do? How does that play out in your life? What do you do if you don't have a husband at home to encourage in your leadership? What do you do with that? Well, number one, continue to do what you're doing. To their, to their single ladies, continue to do what you're doing. You guys are doing an amazing job. But if you have sons, can I encourage you with this? Begin now to empower your son's leadership. Begin now to empower them to lead. Push them to lead. Push them to be the leader that God has already intended them to be. And some of you may think, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I, how am I supposed to show my, my boy how to be a man? I get that. Bring other people around alongside you. I've heard it said over and over again, it takes a village, right? And I've seen several people post on Facebook, I love my village. That's awesome, it does. It takes a village. Count other men to speak spiritually into the lives of your children. Make a huge, huge difference. So 1 Corinthians 11 isn't really about a head covering. It's not about a head covering. It's not about... Women, you got to wear a hat next Sunday. Or men, don't you ever dare wear a hat. It's not about a head covering. But it's about understanding the social structure God has set up. Would you pray with me?